like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure. Can't swatch in store? Finding your perfect foundation match is basically impossible right now. That's why Il Maquillage's online quiz is such a game changer. It finds your perfect match in seconds from the comfort of your own home. And it gets even better. With Try Before You Buy, you can try your full-size shade at home free for 14 days. So convenient in times like these. Take the quiz at ilmaquillage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Hello? Hello, I'm here. Oh, Hi. no video. Okay, okay, I'm turning it off. I love seeing your face. <laughs> But it slows down the connection so we don't get as good quality audio. You can at least say hi for a second on video. Oh, yeah, you Hi. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. Today, we're talking to Tina Roth Eisenberg. Tina was born in Switzerland and trained as a graphic designer before moving to New York City to begin her career. You may know her by her alias, Swiss Miss, which is also the name of her very popular blog. On a personal level, Tina's been a friend and a mentor who gave me a much needed kick in the butt in the early days of Design Milk. Maybe you've attended a Creative Mornings event in your city? Creative Mornings is a free monthly breakfast lecture series for the creative community that she founded in 2008 and now operates in 172 cities around the world. Or perhaps you've adorned yourself with a beautiful illustration from Tatley, her designy temporary tattoo company. 
She also founded a co-working space called Friends Work Here, and she's pretty much an entrepreneurial superhero and a force for good in the business world. Plus, she keeps a drawer in her desk filled with confetti, just, you know, in case. My name is Tina Roth Eisenberg. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a trained graphic designer gone business owner, and I do what I do because I love creativity and I love people. Nice. Very short and sweet. Yeah. So, Tina, we want to deconstruct you all the way down to the very beginning. So let's just start, you know, from just shortly post zygote or amoeba phase. Uh, what were you like as a as a child? Like, what was your family like? Where did you grow up? Paint the picture mm-hmm. of your childhood for us. Okay, so I'm going to take you back to Switzerland. Imagine green pastures, farmhouses, cows, and then a chain of the Alps. <laughs> and there's little Tina running around in the middle of it. And uh, having way too much energy and having way too many ideas and wanting to conquer the world at like five years old. (laughs) (laughs) That was about me and trying to be really funny and silly all the time. So that was me in a nutshell. And I, uh, I grew up with two entrepreneurial parents, not realizing at the time how much that would impact me. My mom ran a super high end fashion store, which my grandfather started really big one. And my dad started multiple businesses and was actually Mr. Apple in Switzerland uh, for quite some time. So um, I've definitely been influenced by my parents and their work ethic and their love of running businesses, and which has eventually resulted in me running multiple business now in my life. Did you have siblings and did you do well in school? I have an older sister. She and I are both Capricorns and for some reason school was easy for us and we wanted to do well and and. So I, I, I think I was really annoying. I don't know what the word is in English, but I was one of those who always did the homework and tried to do it extra good and actually did more because I was just so hungry and thirsty and I just wanted to learn and do and, you know, and I, I think I was really annoying. Oh, my- overachiever, I think we I call was that. Overachiever, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'm the kind of kid you made look bad. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. I think I was just bored. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to learn and do stuff and explore the world. And Well, what kind of stuff did you do, you know, in the rolling pastures and the farmhouses? Were there like games that you made up or stuff to play with? Like, what'd you do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's so funny. Like, I, and I live in Brooklyn and I raised two kids here. And I, I oftentimes I just laugh at how different their upbringing is to mine. Because, I mean, I would just roam, you know, like after dinner, you run outside and until your mom whistles and at nine o'clock and you have to go back in <laughs> and you would just roam with your friends and play games. And, and I was always, I was always drawing and being creative. And, uh, I remember just to give you an example, how I just wanted to do stuff. I, I think I was seven or eight, maybe eight. I started my own magazine. <laughs> I wasn't deep at all. It was more just fun to produce. I loved more the act of making it. It had jokes in it and quizzes. And I would photo- photocopy it and staple it. And then I would walk door to door and sell it to the poor neighbors for like two bucks. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, That's you know, a high I, price magazine. <laughs> but the funny thing is, you know, like I, my mom would produce it. So she didn't really teach me the cost and then, you know, how much profits, whatever. It's just like, oh, I got two bucks now. <laughs> that was, it was adorable. What would you spend your money on? Oh, you know, candy. Mm hmm. Yeah, and you know it's actually funny. I thought of this the other day. I 
I don't know if you have this, but I remember when I thought of things costing a lot in $5 increments. I mean, five Swiss francs. I remember I would go to stores and they had pens and maybe nice erasers, you know, Hello Kitty stuff. And when something was below five Swiss francs, I thought, yeah, that's okay. I can do that. But everything above five was a lot. And then I remember (laughs) I bought my first vinyl that was 20 Swiss francs. So that became my benchmark for when something costs a lot. I would, you know, calculate everything and how many vinyls can I buy for that? (laughs) <laughs> or then it was my first bike. Like, isn't that funny how like you slowly but surely adapt what you <laughs> consider as expensive or your benchmark for, you know, that's worth some. I don't know. Yeah, no, I had the same thing. Me and my sister used to calculate how much we'd make on the paper route in terms of how many pairs of designer jeans it would buy us. See, there you go. Sometimes <laughs> I think about when I run, like how many tacos. <laughs> which by the way i always feel so but i look at your instagram of the running it was like yeah and i still haven't done anything i know but see i don't take a picture of all the tacos that i eat oh, okay. so that i <laughs> that's why i run <laughs> well i live vicariously i run vicariously through your instagram <laughs> yeah me too so wait tina i just want to check your your childhood sounds super idyllic was it really as happy as you're making it sound like did you get along with your parents and your sibling and was everything kind of green pastures and and snow-covered yeah. alps well no of course not i mean no childhood is perfect right i mean i would say Absolutely. I, I, had, yeah. I had an incredibly privileged upbringing you know we grew up mm-hmm. in a big house my i never really had like as a kid i never had to worry about money my our parents really you know even though you know, they had incredible up and downs with their businesses. They really shielded us from that. I, I didn't actively realize, or I can't recall, you know, worrying that we got not going to have food. So I think from that regard, that's, that's incredibly privileged already. I would go on vacations and all of that, but you know, you know, my sister and I, we had our normal differences. We weren't incredibly co- close. We had to actually, I had to move to New York for us to get closer, which is pretty funny. Yeah. And then, you know, my, my parents, you know, they weren't necessarily the happiest married couple. So, I mean, you know, it all sounds perfect. Of course, no, no child is perfect. But overall, I would say I was incredibly privileged and lucky to grow up the way I did. So I heard you speak a couple years, well, maybe it was many years ago. Um, and you talked about an aunt that you had. Oh, I don't know why this stuck with me, but you talked about her and I wanted you to retell that a little bit because I can't really remember but I just know that she had like an influence on you yeah you should see my face right now I have a smile ear to ear I love talking about I have a very eccentric aunt that all her life when I heard stories about her she just always lived the life the way she wanted to live like she she didn't care about rules she didn't care about what people think and she lived an incredibly courageous, creative life. So she lived in Zurich an hour away and she was just that crazy aunt that I had in my life. And she, um, when I was small and when I was like seven or eight, she was, she was with a graphic designer. So she was a fashion designer. Her house was full of art and, and, and weird sculptures. And, and just like, she was really into design. Like she had very interesting objects. So whenever I would go to her house, I, I just loved everything about it and the weirdness on the walls and, you know, um, and then her partner was a graphic designer and, and he opened up the world to me that actually that is a profession. That is a way to make a living. And just my aunt, she just, she doesn't, she doesn't care what people think about her. And that's very unusual for the Swiss culture. And so, so you hear all the time, what are people going to say? What are people going to say? 
And so I really feel like everybody needs an eccentric end in their life. And this is a metaphor, like somebody that shows you that you can just be who you want to be, that you can be a little crazy, that you, you know, that you can live the life you can, you know, just be, be who you want to be without always worrying what other people are going to think. So I'm, I'm really grateful that not only my aunt opened up my eyes to the design world and to the fact that there is, there are careers, creative careers out there, but also just to, to allow me to just to be, to be loud and weird and, and silly. So it's, it's a real, it's a real gift. So I'm, I'm trying to be that crazy and sometimes too, maybe sometimes <laughs> even digitally, I feel sometimes I can do that maybe through my blog and through Instagram. It sounds a bit cheesy, but I really do feel like people need to see that you can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that because I'm sort of the crazy aunt in my family dynamic, but now you've just given me like the juice I needed to be an even crazier aunt. Yeah. Even more eccentric. <laughs> don't don't really don't underestimate what impact that can have on kids or just young people in general. It's it's really inspiring. It sounds like a great situation in Switzerland with your family and doing well in school and the crazy aunt. But at some point you decided to transition to the United States. Can you tell us that story? Like what was the impetus for the move and was it school? Was it work? What happened? Yeah. I mean, again, I always had, so much energy and so many ideas. And to me, I think it was clear very early on that I wanted to explore the world. So, you know, our school system is a bit different. So, but I graduated from what we call sort of a hybrid of high school and college at 20. And then you're, then you go off and you study until you're like 25 ish. It's a little different. Mm -hmm. But, but after I graduated at 20, I looked at my parents and I pitched them that my idea of wanting to go to Parsons School of Art in New York for a year, which would mean I would learn English and I could dip my fingers into, you know, into the art world or see if, if the creative path is actually what I want. And my parents shut that down immediately because they didn't believe in, you know, me going far away. I, I get it now in hindsight, I'm a mom now too. So, but they said, if you want to go to art school, which they deep inside, I don't think wanted me to do. They said it has to be in Switzerland. So I applied to all the schools that were the furthest away. And you got to understand, Switzerland is really small. So it was like <laughs> the furthest I could go was Geneva, which is a four-hour train ride, which is really adorable for every American. So, but that was, so I got in and I went to art school there and I realized, well, this is really it. I need to, because they were secretly hoping I would do, go to business school. There's a super famous university, a business university, like in the next town or, you know, and school is free in, in Switzerland. It's just, it's amazing. So, wow. but then I, I burst a bubble and I said, you know, I'm going to go study graphic design. And then I picked Munich as my school. I got in because they had a system where they didn't really care if you showed up. Uh, and I knew that <laughs> I'm going to be that type that wants to work real, like your real life assignments. So I knew I'm going to freelance as much as I can, because that's how I learn. I knew that's my learning style. So I, I graduated four years later from Munich graphic design school. And I had a job lined up in Zurich. At this point, I'm 26. And I had my job lined up in Zurich. I had an, a, a, share, a room and a share lined up. And I looked at my parents and said, I saved enough money. I'm going to put my stuff in storage. And I'm going to go to New York for three months. So that was in September of 99. And they were just like, what are you going to do? I was like, I'm going to find an internship. So I flew over. I, I arrived on a Monday in September of 1999. I had one job off. I mean, a, an interview lined up on Tuesday morning. And I walk in there so naive, so adorably naive. And my English was so bad. It was so stinking cute in hindsight. 
And Matthew, who interviewed me for five minutes, looks at me and goes, oh, it was a very small design studio. And he goes, okay, Tina, you got yourself an internship. And also let me tell you, I can predict already, you will never leave New York and you will marry a tall Jewish man. And I was <laughs> slightly offended by all of that. I was like, what is he telling me? He was right on all accounts. And, and a few weeks later, not only did I have an internship, but they offered me a full-time job. They offered me a visa. And, and then I never went back. So this has been 18 years now in the making. And, you know, I found my home. Wow. And who is this fortune teller? Uh, is he still a friend of yours? And can he predict the future? <laughs> yeah, he can predict the future. No, he's a, <laughs> he's a great guy. He, uh, unfortunately, the, the design studio closed down after September 11th. We were right down there. You know, it was a hard time so, and all that. Oh. But he, he's a good friend of mine. He, he now runs his own business. And it's, it's just... He's had a big impact in my, without him, I don't, you know, you always need that first person that gives you a chance in your career. And that's really Matthew Waltman for me. I mean, he really saw my talent. He saw my thirst for really doing good work and working hard. And I'm forever grateful that he gave me that chance. So when you landed here in New York, were there any, was there any culture shock at all? I mean, (laughs) did you adapt right away? Were there any attitudes and values you brought with you that you felt were like very Swiss in nature? Yeah, Yeah, there was definitely some adapting (laughs) to happen, but (laughs) I do vividly remember that morning when I got out of the Wall Street subway because the design studio was down past Wall Street and I walk out and I'm not making this up, but it was such a sense of relief because everybody walked as fast as me. And everyone talked as fast as me. And I literally felt like I've been hitting the brakes all my life in Switzerland. Because, I mean, Switzerland is amazing. It's beautiful. It's, it has an incredible standard of living. It's a beautiful country. But for someone like me who has, is just very entrepreneurial and has this drive of wanting to build things, that's not the culture of Switzerland. I would always hear, that's not going to work. Or what are you going to do if it's going to fail? Like, and in New York, I would go out with friends and I would say, hey, I have the idea for this project. And I'm expecting them to kind of beat it down because that's what I'm used to all my life. And the reaction I would get is like, that's great. Have you thought of X? And by the way, I have a friend. She could help you. And the next thing you know, they connect you. And I'm like, wait a second, you don't even know me yet. And you're putting your reputation on the line because in Switzerland, you wouldn't connect someone unless you know that person is going to definitely make you look good. But here in New York, I feel like there's this incredible sense of just like, I help you. You help me one day. Like, it's just like, if you're, if you're successful, I'm successful. Like it, I, the sense of, I'm going to help you with your thing. It, you know, that the five minute favor that Adam Grant always talks about. Have you ever heard about that? No, no, it's a, you should look it up. Adam Grant has written about that. Like if sometimes all it takes is you connecting someone that is building someone, something to that one person that is going to be the breakthrough for them. Sometimes it just takes five minutes to do a small gesture that has huge impact for someone else. And I feel like New York city, the culture here is the culture of five minute favors. I love that. And it reminds you that, yeah, these tiny gestures of connecting people or even opening a door for someone actually can, I don't know, brighten someone's day slash give them just enough enthusiasm to keep moving forward with their project yep i like your attitude lady already i feel better about (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) so 
you're very entrepreneurial. You've mentioned that a few times and it's evident in the projects that you've built. You started off working for design studios and then you went out on your own and then your side projects, which you call your labors of love, became your main projects. Can you recount that path for a little bit? And also, like, have you always just had this much guts, like, to just make things that didn't exist before? I, I want to know about that, too. Um, yeah, I think I did. I, yeah. yeah I think <laughs> okay. I, did. I mean, it's, I mean, I could just give you, like, now in hindsight, I realized that I was entrepreneurial in between 16 and 20, that, that specific school as we have in Switzerland, mm-hmm. when I started running this, uh, the Student Scout Council and I helped with the newspaper and I organized all the cultural events. And then that wasn't enough for me. And I, with four other guys, we launched the National Students Council organization. So in hindsight, that was basically the breeding ground for me to learn what it takes to lead people and especially volunteers. <laughs> because there's a certain psychology behind leading people and, and, and getting them, you know, getting them excited to execute and stuff in their free time. Yeah, it's funny that, you know, and then and then I went, I studied and I came to New York and I worked in agencies and studios. And I sort of that all went away for a little while until when I was 30. Actually, when I became pregnant, pregnant with my daughter, it was this weird aha moment where I was like, Tina, what are you doing? Like, like I took inventory of my life, like as my belly grew, I was like, you have all these dreams of running your own studio, design studio. And you're just waiting for this angelic moment that's going to come down and tell you this choir, like, you should start your studio now. And I realized, wow, that's actually never going to happen. And, and I was really bold and started my design studio the day when my daughter was born. But I really felt I had this moment of, oh, my God, I'm going to have children. And they better look up to me and say one day, wow, my mom, she really lived her truest life. She really oh. lived the life, you know, to her full potential because I'm going to be so embarrassed. I would be so embarrassed if one of my children, if I didn't really try my best. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm probably a little extreme. <laughs> but anyway, I started my own design studio when my daughter was born. And out of that came that I started a co-working space because I didn't want to work alone at home or, you know, just rent a desk in a soulless office. And then the co-working space surrounded me with incredibly talented and smart and entrepreneurial people, which then sort of planted the seed of, you know what, I really shouldn't do services for other people. So when my son was born, I decided to go on a one-year sabbatical, which I was lucky enough to do because my blog made substantial advertising income. So I could still cover my share, you know, of what I needed to pay to get out, keep our life going. And then that one-year client sabbatical turned into never, ever having clients again, because it, it, it sort of freed up brain space to work on my own projects. And then I started a to-do app called To-Do, and I started Tatly, my temporary tattoo company, and somewhere in between, I also started Creative Mornings. And again, these were all labor of loves, just because I, I thought the idea was fun, and it, I wanted this, this thing to exist. But I never started these projects with the goal of making money, which I think is the secret sauce of this whole thing. But anyway, fast forward now, my daughter is 11. She's always my milestone. Every time she, she has a birthday, it reminds me of how long I've gone solo and how long it's been since I really just embraced my dreams and, and kind of went for it. And I always get very emotional on her birthday because I really felt like she was my catalyst 
And I think one day she's going to understand. Right now, I think she's still a little weirded out when I get all emotional and write these posts <laughs> on my Instagram. But I think one day she will be really proud that she just kicked all of this off. <laughs> I do feel a kinship with you, though, about labors of love and starting passion projects that turn into uh, bigger projects that actually, you know, that you could live off of. Mm -hmm. But community is one thing that's always been really important to you, especially with the, the co-working space, but also with Creative Mornings. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of community and how you feel like you've made some magic happen? When I moved to New York and I literally didn't know a soul, uh, as, as a social butterfly as I was, you know, living in Switzerland before and then Munich and Geneva and all that, I moved to New York and I remember I was about two weeks in and it was a Friday night and I was like, I have nobody to call. <laughs> Who do I hang out with? Right. And, and I realized, man, how am I going to find my people here? And, it, you know, when you move somewhere where you didn't know anyone, you become really focused on creating your community. And it's also a really cool thing because you can start new and nobody has any prejudice and nobody puts you in some, you know, box. But I realized also how incredibly hard it was to find my people. And so when I started my co-working space, when I started going on my own, I realized, wow, the daily influence of like-minded people with really good values and like-minded values and just generous hearts and hardworking people it made me so much better as a human and so much better as, you know, at my work that I just said, man, there's, I always looked at uh, our co-working space was on the East river overlooking Manhattan. And I always said, this is so great. How would I have on a daily basis? But I would look at Manhattan. I was like, there's so many more good people out there that I want to meet. <laughs> and that's when I started opening my door and realizing when I first moved here, there were a few events, maybe AIGA events, but I couldn't afford them because I made no money. So I realized there needs to be something that's accessible that gives creative people a sort of a home, you know, a place where they can meet up. And that's why I started Creative Mornings. And it was important to me that it was completely accessible for anyone. And so that's why they're free. And uh, there's nothing that fuels me more than getting an email from people. And we get them all the time and we put them in our uh, Ego Boost Slack channel. And sometimes I go back just to, to bathe myself in them. It's like basically... <laughs> People saying, hey, I moved to San Francisco. I didn't know a soul. I've been going to, I don't know, Boston Creative Mornings. Now I, I went to the San Francisco Creative Mornings and I found my tribe. I made friends and I'm home. And just the, knowing that, you know, I've created something that makes people feel home and feel welcome and, and safe where they can connect. It's just, that's just the best. <laughs> so I'm a big believer that community is everything and, and, for example, I moved to a new um, neighborhood um, in Brooklyn a year and a half ago. And it's a, it's, I used to live in a big new construction, 250 apartment building. And now I live in a brownstone with a stoop. And I have, I have been able to create this mini community with neighbors across the street. And we hang out pretty much every night and we sit on the stoop and we drink. And now we're scheming a big giant dinner block party where we're going to have a giant table across the whole block and we're going to all have a potluck and I'm just in my happy place when I can create community and when I can see people connecting and, and opening up that's when I'm that's when I'm the happiest I love that it's almost like you took your experience coming to New York and just decided to give that to everybody else yeah sort of awesome <laughs> I get a little intense when I'm very enthusiastic about something <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's talk about another thing you're very enthusiastic about. You uh, created a temporary tattoo company called Catley, um, Mm -hmm. which was another labor of love. Could you tell the story of how that came about? Yeah. (laughs) So in, um, oh my God, 2011, in the spring, my daughter uh, came home from yet another birthday party with the goodie bags, which by the way, it's such an American tradition. I just don't get it. No judgment at all. (laughs) But she came home with a goodie bag. And of course, it's filled with crappy plastic toys. And there's another hideous temporary tattoo. So she asked me, mommy, mommy, can you apply it? And I looked at design. And you know, I'm a designer. I have some standards. And I was fuming. I was like, I can't believe I'm putting this shitty temporary tattoo on my daughter. And even the quality was bad. And I realized I just caught myself yet again complaining about this. And then I... And I have this personal rule that if I catch myself complaining about something, I have two options. Either do something about it or let it go. Because complaining is really just a waste of energy. And I set myself kind of down and said, okay, Tina, you've been complaining about this for so many times now. And then I thought, you know what? I'm a user interface designer. I'm a graphic designer. I can build a website. I, I can brand the product. I have so many illustrator friends I could just make a really fun site and just for, for kicks, sell temporary tattoos. So I researched it. I emailed some of my, you know, I emailed Jessica Hish and Julia Rothman and some, you know, some really well-known awesome designers and, that I've been celebrating for years on my blog and said, hey, what if I make a site? Do you want to design something? The next day I had designs in my inbox. I didn't realize that artists would be super stoked to design something for skin. This is a completely new canvas. Mm. So fast forwards two months later, we launched Tatley sort of as a, as a joke and anything else. And um, so we, we launched it with 16 designs thinking, yeah, we're going to ship maybe 50 orders a month or something. And sure enough, the second day in business, the Tate Modern Shop buyer in London calls. And he was very professional and asked and congratulated me on the brand and looked so professional. And how long have you been around? And I didn't really dare to say two days. And, <laughs> and then he asked for a wholesale catalog. And I remember sitting there going, I have no idea what a wholesale catalog is. <laughs> and I, I took his information. I was like, no problem. We'll ship it to you. And I hung up and I screamed. I was like, guys, what is a wholesale catalog? <laughs> and, then, and then we made packaging and we realized that stores want it. And the rest is history. Now we're turning six next month. Uh, we just hit a million that we paid out to our artists. Like it's really important to me that we pay a really generous royalty to the artists with every design sold. So that the support of artists is super important to me. And it was a huge milestone last month when we, when we hit a million and yeah, we have 16 people working in Totley in Brooklyn. We ship around the world. It's, it's quite, it's quite humbling when you jump into an industry that you know nothing about and you just, you know, you're just that novice going, Hey, let me try this. And I, I actually think there's beauty in that because I have questioned things that somebody that comes from retail would have never dared to question. So I'm quite humbled by what Tetley has become. Unwanted family guests are like fish. They start to stink after three days. So what's the best mattress for them this holiday season? Definitely not a nectar. Then they'll never leave. Flip those fish your old mattress and put your human body on a nectar. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. A fresher deal than your mackerel mother-in-law, right? Go to Nectarsleep.com today. 
Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. So what about the business aspect of all these things that you've started creating? How are you learning how to run these businesses? Uh, by, you know, I think that the key is really that I just talk to a lot of people. I ask a lot of questions. For example, when I started Tatley, I talked to my friend Raul, quite experienced building something very similar. Um, it's just A, doing your research, and B, I hired young, smart uh, hustlers that I just told them, listen, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but we are all smart. We can all use Google. Let's just figure it out. And if we make mistakes, we make mistakes. And you know, the, the fact that I started all these things sort of while I was doing other things at the same time meant that I was never 100% just focused on one company, which then I automatically had to trust my teams more and let them make decisions without me. And I honestly think that that setup made both companies, Creative Mornings and Tatley, better because of it. Because if it would have always been just me, there's so many personalities in both companies and it was really happy when uh, about two months ago, uh, one of my employees at Tatley came up to me and said, you know, I'm just so happy that I can work here because you really let us run this company. It's not you running this company. We run this company as a team. And there's no bigger compliment to me than that, that they really feel empowered, that they can make decisions and, and feel like they have a real impact on, on where the company is going. Well, I agree with you. Having a sense of ownership over any project is what it really motivates people to put their best into it. Yeah. And I think you have a kind of contagious quality. It seems like you run all of your projects, whether you intend for them to become businesses or not, you sort of start with a, a real true North in terms of your values, mm -hmm. your value compass kind of guides everything you do. And you've already said that community is important and that creative mornings had to be, you know, free and accessible to all and mm -hmm. that you want to pay support artists and pay them a large royalty. It sounds like you're not operating from a traditional entrepreneurial metric, which is bottom line, bottom line, bottom line. Mm -hmm. No. And so that sort of seems like, you know, a crucial key to your success is that you're, you're driving this according to your values, but do you ever experience friction or has it ever been confusing or difficult for people to understand yeah, no, it's all, it's difficult all the time. I mean, just to, ex just to tell you, like there's some hard decisions I probably have to make with Tatley just because, you know, did I think about margins when I started this? No, 
you know, but it just comes down to eventually that I also, while I want to always be very generous, like sometimes I, I slowly but surely have to make more business, you know, aligned decisions. And, and, and that's something where I have to make some, you know, every now and then I have to make some concessions and I give in to a certain extent. So it's not always easy. Um, but at the same time, I truly believe that in, in the time we're in right now, people sense the authenticity and just the, what's the word that the generosity that oozes out of my projects. I think people feel that. And, and there's just so many businesses that are just into, you know, like these super well-funded startups that all are just about scaling and, and fast. And then we're flipping it. And I, I just feel like you feel that as a, as a consumer. And I, I, the other day I made a list of companies that I really trust and feel like I'm, I feel connected to, and it came down to owners that had really good values, owners that, that, that led a company because they want to impact more. They just don't want to, not just want to make money, but usually what it comes down to is the companies that want to have an impact on society by creating really healthy work environments and, you know, changing work culture and making sure that teams are, you know, respected and feel appreciated and all of that. I know it sounds cheesy, but I do believe that, companies are more have should not just think about making money but just about the impact they have on the world and the people that work for them that does not sound cheesy at all and i wish it didn't sound so refreshing i wish that was everybody's attitude (laughs) (laughs) oh i feel like as consumers we we need to be more aware of the companies that do good that have really good values and that and we should because we vote with our wallets i think we need to be so aware of that and there are certain companies that I will not use just because of the douchiness of leadership from the very top. <laughs> Shysters. <laughs> um, so I have a weird question for you. Yeah. You have all these projects, businesses going at once. What is your physiological response to like an emergency, a business emergency or a, a fire that needs to be put out? You mean, how do I react? Yeah. I go into super intense problem-solving mode. What does that look like? Well, uh, let's say I get an email with bad news. I usually stand up, I walk around, I read it, I think about it. Uh, And usually what I say right away is, this is a term we use at Creative Mornings, and uh, I really love it, is how can we flip this? How can we flip this? So there have been many times where something bad came up or seemingly like, you know, a huge roadblock. And then what I always try to do in these moments, because I'm a big believer, nothing is a coincidence and things happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. I keep telling myself, okay, this is happening. I see you. How can I flip this and turn this into something positive? How do I need to change my angle and look at this from a different point of view you know, to not obsess over what I think is bad right now, because sometimes it's just bad because I look from, I did from this angle right now. So I do try to flip things on its head. And oftentimes, you know, it, it depends on what the problem is, but oftentimes if it's in, interpersonal problems, you just need to pick up the phone and talk to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I usually just go, I try to go an empathetic route in solving problems and uh, from the heart and trying to flip it into something good. Does that help? Yes, it does help. <laughs> but how long is that? 
period of time between getting the bad news and flipping it into something positive? Is it instantaneous? Well, it depends if the house is burning and people need to get out, then it's instantaneous. But <laughs> if I know I can give it some thought, I will. I probably need to sleep over it. I'm someone who needs to kind of digest something mm-hmm. and then it comes back up um, in, in my brain and then I can articulate how I feel. I'm, I'm a feeler. So sometimes, you know, I can't react right away. I'm also someone who's really aware. I would never want to say something that I regret. Or, you know, you just can't unhear things. And I'm, I'm also very sensitive. So I'm aware of if I say something that really hurts, that will never go back. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I, I definitely would rather digest it and think about it carefully and say something that comes from a, a sense of empathy than something impulsive that's going to hurt somebody's feelings. I can't tolerate the idea of hurting someone's feelings. I really I know, can't. I, my team would probably totally laugh right now because I also have this incredible impulsive Swiss German side of me. And sometimes I just blurt out what I'm thinking. <laughs> so they're probably like, yeah, she wants to be slow and not hurt anyone. Man, you can see in my face what I'm thinking when something happens. <laughs> okay. So you talked that about that it's important that there are companies that, you know, you admire and that there's an important value system there, but leadership and business culture are some of your current interests. Can you share maybe some of the insights uh, that have helped you be a better leader in all of your businesses? There's definitely some people I look up to and um, that I admire that think about leadership a lot. Uh, you know, Simon Sinek, Charlie Kim, who runs a really interesting, who has a very interesting work culture here in New York. Um, so, I mean, in general, I think what has always impacted me is hear Simon Sinek talk about the importance of a leader that creates an environment where people feel trusted and respected and heard. Uh, you know, and he always speaks on how when, when you create that environment, they will be better members of society because they will be a happier spouse and they will not dread coming to work and they will feel a sense of fulfillment. And that is really what I aspire to. It's really important to me to create a work environment where people really feel like they can learn and grow and where there's a really healthy work-life balance. You know, here, you know, in New York, there's a lot of really well-funded startups and I can't compete with them. I, I, you know, I'm bootstrapped. I, I pay humble salaries, but what I do offer in exchange is very values driven businesses where we, we always have that North star that we, you know, want to go after. And I want to make sure people can, can, can grow and have freedom. And, you know, if they want to work from home, they can work from home. And just that really human centered from the heart approach is really important to me. I love that. Have you ever gotten any really incredible advice that you just could never forget and made like a big impact on you? This is not necessarily a piece of advice, but it was one of the most enlightenment moments for me in terms of, you know how sometimes you built something, you have created something and it's hard for you to talk about it because you're just too close. And then somebody else comes and is like, wow, you know, that thing you've built, it feels like blah, 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 blah. And you sit there and you want to write everything down because they talk about it in a different way. So that's what happened to me when I was invited to a very intimate, super fancy, small summit thingy where I got to present creative mornings in front of a very prestigious group and including, uh, Bill Uri, who co-wrote getting to yes. So he's a peace mediator. He's one of the most unbelievable human beings I've ever met, like a kind soul, super smart. I mean, really wonderful. 
and he was in the audience and I was presenting the idea behind creative mornings and how it works and his face lit up. And afterwards he said, can I please have lunch with you? Can I sit across from you? And I said, sure. So we're sitting there, we're talking and he says, do you know why this is working? Do you know why it's growing the way it is? And I was like, no, Bill, please tell me. (laughs) And then he said, what you have built with creative mornings is on the basis of non-transactional giving. When they come to your event and they're being welcomed with a smile and you hand them a coffee and there's breakfast and then there's an inspiring talk and you never pitch them and you never ask them for money and then they go home, they want to be part of this. Like they, they, they will feel so filled up that they go, what, how can I help this? Like, I want to go again. I want to be part of this. But let's say if you buy a ticket to a concert, it's a transaction. You buy a ticket, you get the ticket, you go, you expect a great concert and then you go home and then it's over. Mm -hmm. Right. So I thought that he was able to give me that language that what we've built with creative mornings is based on non-transactional giving was really important to me. And actually the way we thought about our community and, and how we work. So it's not a piece of advice. It's just, that was a pivotal moment for me. I love that. Thanks for sharing. Let's get into your personal life. (laughs) Tina, the real (laughs) Tina. (laughs) So you're a mom and you have a ton of stuff going on in your life. All of these businesses and side projects, et cetera. How are you able to juggle all of this? Well, it's a good question because I could have, whenever I give talks and whatever, I always say that I couldn't have started all of these businesses while I had small children. If it wouldn't have been for, you know, a partner at my side that helps me, that really carries half of the load. And I was incredibly fortunate to, you know, have a father of my children that was there, that, that we really we were 50 50. And if I had to travel, you know, to a conference or whatever, he would always say, go, go, go. He was as, as, as supportive as a partner can be. And I am forever grateful, but at the same time, you know, all of the projects that I'd done and, and sort of the success that I had, it was also hard on the marriage. And I've actually never really talked about this, but here I am. Um, and I, he and I actually separated almost two years ago. I remember when I just realized we, we can't really make it work. We, we sort of decided together that, you know, it's better to separate. And I remember I approached this uh, again. I did my, how can I flip this approach? <laughs> and I, uh, I, I treated this like a, a design challenge. And I asked my friends if they had anyone that had separated or got divorced. And that was a good story. And I sat down with five different individuals the men and women that had really good separation and divorce stories. And I took note, I really made case studies because I was just, I was just determined to separate in, in a, in, in a way and set ourselves up for success that we are going to be the best co-parents that we can be because we both love being parents and we are really, really good parents. And, uh, so I, I studied that and we, we, we are in such a good place and we very quickly got into a very good place. So we're 50, 50 parenting, uh, the kids are thriving They're and I'm not, not just sugarcoating it. They're really doing well. And, uh, we managed to really get to a place where, you know, we can hang out. We have a good time. The kids are happy and, and I'm proud of that. I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to 
you know, when all the dust really settled to write about this and, and to speak more publicly about this, because I, unfortunately I feel like separation and divorce has such an incredible stigma in this, in this country. And I just want to become a voice uh, for people to give them hope if they're unhappily married, because it's, it's really hard to feel lonely in a marriage uh, for both sides. And I am such a better mom now, now that I'm, you know, on my own again, and I'm feeling, I feel like I'm living my true life again. And I'm so much happier when I come home. And I feel like I see it in the kids. Like they, they see a really happy, empowered mom when they come home. And I think the same with, with my ex-husband. And, and I'm, you know, when I, <laughs> when we, when I talked to my divorce lawyer, it was actually really funny. Uh, and I, we came super prepared. We had everything hashed out ourselves before, uh, just him and me. And she was like, wow, this is an odd case. Never seen this. And then we were talking and she said, wow, you really got this figured out. And I said, yeah, you know, if, if I had to pick an ex-husband, I would pick him. <laughs> she, started, she started laughing and she said, in the 20 years that I've had this practice, I've never heard anyone say that sentence. But it's true. I feel you totally. We had another guest, um, uh, Genevieve Border on episode two, who talked about divorce in a similar way. She's like, I've, when somebody tells me they've gotten divorced, I, I tell them congratulations because I know yes. how hard it was to arrive at that decision. I know mm -hmm. all the work you did trying to make the marriage work. And yeah. I know that it was a really hard decision to make, but that was the hardest part. Now yes. that you guys have made the decision... If your hearts are both in the right place, then it's all about just constructing a new dynamic that works for the kids and that works for you. And frequently that can be a much healthier, more satisfying, fulfilling dynamic. And it doesn't have to be a bad thing. We don't have to yeah. talk about divorce like it's a, a terrible failure. And yet yeah. so often we do. I know. That's why we need to lift up the stories that are, you know, the good stories. Yeah. And you have to set an example for your kids that... If it's not working, there's another way to make it work. It, yeah, and, you know and what unfortunately, I, mean? I, I lived through that with my parents. And, you know, granted, that was a completely different time. Yeah. And my mom moved out the day after I moved out when I was 20, 21. Oh, like, she really? literally waited until I was done. And in hindsight, my mom is awesome and totally badass. And I, I am so grateful for everything she's done. But in hindsight, I'm thinking, wow, mom, you could have done this way earlier. But she did, you know, what was right for her. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I, I'm a really big believer, being a mom of an 11 of a seven year old, that the biggest thing you can do as a parent is modeling. Like mm -hmm. whatever you model is, that's what they're going to copy. That's what they're picking up. And I felt my daughter was getting to the age she was when we separated. She was nine where she really started understanding, I think, and really feeling and seeing the tension. Not that she didn't see it before. But I think it just became way more clear to her that there, there was, this was not, and I didn't want her to see an unhappy marriage and think that this is what marriage is. Because I honestly still to this day think, wow, I actually want to be around some really, really, really happy couples to kind of soak that in a bit because I want to be able to copy that, you know? Yeah. But when, you, when you've been around all your life around couples that are struggling to make it work, then that's all, you know. And, and so I, I'd rather be alone and happy than my kids seeing me struggle through a relationship where we we're both not happy. But it's also really powerful that, that the two of you are co-parenting in such a glorious way, right? So you're modeling a way to get through hardship and come out even better on the other side. And I think that's really powerful. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I have so much respect for, for my ex as well. Like, I mean, we we really are making this work and we're both very flexible with each other. And uh, again, like, you know, you need to, though. You know, my heart goes out to everyone else who's tried to have a really happy divorce. And, you know, you, you both parties need to be on board to really go there. Yeah, well, even though you've painted a really positive picture, I know that, you know, it's it's a major life disturbance and it's you know there's heartbreak involved too so i'm just giving you a hug through the microphone thank you you. but again as i said before advice for anyone if anyone ever tells you they're going to separate or get divorced give them a hug high five them and say congratulations (laughs) as you said they arrived at this incredible decision and it was really hard before so what they need then is encouragement and and you go (laughs) but you don't Eat that. Oh, I'm so sorry for you because that is all mm. past already. <laughs> right. And another one if somebody that you really love is getting separated, divorced, just check in on them every now and then. Just send them a text and saying, Hey, you're doing okay? Because that's another thing, by the way, which I find is fascinating to see who has the emotional capacity to, to be there for you. Yes. You really hard time. Yes. And then there are those who are just skittish and afraid <laughs> to be around you because you might. Yeah need to talk about it or have a cry or something. <laughs> oh, so many feelings. <laughs> okay. So speaking of feelings, entrepreneurs, at least the ones I know are often overworked and exhausted, but you never seem like that. You always seem super excited and positive and you always have this positive outlook on life. How have you been able to channel that excitement and it just spreads like wildfire? How, how do you do that? Okay, first of all, don't trust everything you see on social media. <laughs> <laughs> what, it's not all balloons, rainbows, unicorns? No, what? No, no. <laughs> um, no, you know, I have my moments, especially, you know, last year was hard on many levels. And, you know, when you're emotionally a bit fragile and all that. But I mean, I guess overall, what it comes down to is that I am very fortunate that I do work that fuels me and that I feel has such mission and creates such value that no matter how hard things get or, you know, if I have personal issues, when you have something that fills you up like that, that is a very privileged place to be. And I I know a lot of people who do work that is just, that doesn't fulfill them. And I always remind myself that, you know, I need to be grateful and hold on to the things I have and appreciate the things I have. And, you know, granted my marriage fell apart, whatever, you know, that's, you know, you can't have it all, but in the end of the day, I have two healthy children. I have companies that create really good juju in the world uh, I have teams around me that make me happy that I love being around. So I'm, I'm an incredible optimist and I'm trying to remind myself of that. And then sometimes I'm alone at home and I drink three glasses of wine and I feel really bad for myself, but that I see, I don't show that on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that though. Cause that makes me feel better. <laughs> that, yeah, me too. <laughs> And in fact, we should probably just all turn on Skype when we're doing that. We can have those glasses of wine together. (laughs) So we've talked a lot about your optimism and what fulfills you, but what 
on the flip side of that, what scares you? Like, what is your kryptonite? I think my, I mean, this is the lesson I learned. The thing I've underestimated separating from my husband was to be financially completely on my own again. Mm. So he and I completely, we both, you know, paid equal uh, parts of our life and very comfortable life. And I did not expect struggling as much as I did with all of a sudden being completely on my own, meaning if I don't pay rent, if I don't make enough money, I, there's nobody else to catch me. Mm-hmm. And that is something I underestimated and is something where I had to prove myself for, it's been oh, now almost been two years, for almost two years to, I need to remind myself, you've done it. Like you've, you've lived it. You, you know, you're not broke. You, you, you have a nice apartment. Your kids have nice clothes. You have enough food and, and you're living a good life. And there's this weird subconscious worry about not having enough money, you know, and I'm not someone who has an crazy exuberant lifestyle, not at all. Money is not something that drives me. I just need to know I have enough just to pay my life. (laughs) my, My goal is not to have a mansion in the Hamptons. That's not at all it. But, um, so I, I had to remind myself after I, I hit the one year mark of living on my own that you've done it, Tina. So I need to constantly remind myself when I start worrying about money, it's like, Tina, you're doing it. Like, don't, don't have doomsday scenarios ahead of you. Like I think of well, what is going to happen when in five years or so I need to live more in the moment and remind myself that I'm capable and that I'm doing it and I can do it. But for some reason, the totally rational fear around money is something that is my kryptonite. I feel you. I have the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the future now that we know you're terrified of it. (laughs) 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 No, but I mean, is, is there like a Tina, Tina's bucket list or is there, are, are you just kind of free flowing right now, seeing what comes down the river and going for with the flow or um, no, I mean, I have some, um, I have some really exciting things happening at creative mornings right now. I'm building out a new product that I can't talk about yet, but I, I'm like in the building mode again. I'm a, I'm really bad at maintaining. I'm really, really in my happy place when I'm building and figuring out systems. And I'm in the middle of figuring out sort of a new branch of creative mornings that I just think will really change the world for the creative industry. So I'm Ooh. very excited about that. And I mean, to be honest, my, my big goal is that eventually I will have built a business that makes enough money that I can take a really big chunk of money every year, sort of what MailChimp does and support other people that do really cool stuff that are being creative, that are putting themselves out there who have an idea. Like, I mean, I look at MailChimp as the patron of the creative world that has just financed so many wonderful things and projects and conferences and books and magazines and weird stuff. And I just hope to one day be, one day be at the same fortunate place where I can do the same thing. I love that. I've always wanted to be the next MacArthur Foundation or... Yes. If I don't have that much money to give away, I'd settle with a job, the job of the person who gets to call people up and tell them they've gotten a MacArthur <laughs> grant. <laughs> yes. That's my goal. That's my goal. And oh, then I so actually awesome. secretly, I'm hoping that I'm going to be really fit and have a happy old person and that I can create sort of this really cool community of old creative people 
where we have like common spaces, but our apartments and we can hang out and have a good time and sort of redefine what age looks like. That's sort of been my really yeah. long term goal. Love that. <laughs> you can come, we can hang out, we can find. I will totally be there. <laughs> I'll get old with you, Jamie. I would do that. I would grow old with you too, Tina. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm making hearts with my hands right now. all right so we kind of know that you have a top secret project and we're excited to hear more about that but since we can't talk about it is there anything you want to talk about that you're doing that we should tell our listeners to go and check out I mean the one thing that I'm really really excited about that also we've just gotten so much press over the last two weeks um is that at Tatley you know the temporary tattoo company um, we've really kind of reinvented or just pushed the boundaries a little bit again. And we worked with a fragrance house. I don't know if you know that, but we worked with a fragrance house and we created scented temporary tattoos. I call them like visual perfume. And uh, all of a sudden, like the press has really caught on and goes like, oh, wait, this is really cool. So I feel like it was a delayed reaction. You know, when you're really excited about a product and you launch it and you think everybody's going to go, this is so great. But for some reason, sometimes it takes a few months until people get it. Really? They're just writing about it now? Yeah, but but now we have multiple sets. And I think now it's starting to become like a real, you know, a product line. And and all of a sudden, everyone's freaking out over uh, scented temporary tattoos, which I think is just a, a really cool. So I'm... I feel like there's a delayed gratification that my team is sensing right now. It's like, this is actually really working after all. <laughs> all right. So where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, that's very easy. I am Swiss Miss <laughs> on Twitter and Instagram. And that's also my blog. It's Swiss-Miss.com. You are the best lady. Thank you for sharing all your optimism with us. I feel like I caught some of it. Later now. <laughs> this was lovely. And it felt like we're just having a chat in the living room. I love it. Thank you so much, Tina. I really appreciate it. Keep on being creative. You inspire me from afar. Wow. She's a really like super badass, cheerful, <laughs> really centered person. Yeah. So Tina's like my mentor (laughs) from afar. I mean, I've known her for so long. um, And what I always have loved about her was her optimism, but also like her drive. It's contagious and her enthusiasm is as well. So I kind of like would follow her to the ends of the earth. I think she's got like a really... (laughs) A really wise perspective on things like when she talked about starting all of these labors of love um these side projects that turned into businesses but then she lets other people run them because she's self-aware enough to know that she can't focus on all of these things and give them all of her attention and that she was also astute enough to recognize that those people running the businesses actually you know got their sense of ownership from it and were really more invested and driven that way and felt like they were running the company and I just think so many people could be less controlling and everything would be better (laughs) yeah I 
I agree with that. I would say that the way that she runs her businesses is very empowering for the people who work for her. And it, it would be great if there were more people like her running companies. So I do appreciate what she's doing also from that aspect. And I also think, you know, what she said about being passionate and having labors of love and having them eventually become businesses is definitely a secret sauce. Mm -hmm. I've noticed a lot of people around me who start things for fun that eventually turn into businesses. They tend to be more satisfied because I think there's something inside of them that just needs to, to do that and needs to be an entrepreneur. But when you're throwing all of, I guess, all of your energy and all of your passion into something, um, people pick up on that. And it, it is, I mean, I don't want to use this word again, but like it's contagious. <laughs> like uh, People get excited and they want to be involved in what you're doing because they see how excited you are about it. Well, and she talked about how she believes that that is palpable or somehow discernible by the consumer. And I totally agree. I think whether we're really aware of it or not, there are certain brands, companies, products or ideas out there that we gravitate towards because there's something in their very DNA that we resonate with. And so, you know, I, I think... On the flip side of that, I can also tell the really throwaway objects that don't have that sort of internal soul because nobody really cared or was just trying to make money or was trying to even cheat you out of your dollars. Yeah, I think con we don't give consumers enough credit that they can't see through the bullshit. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. And I and I do appreciate on a really deep level how she's just running her business the way that she thinks will make happier people um, all of her employees and all the people who interact with her products and that has ripple effect yeah I also appreciated her anecdote about the non-transactional giving which I've never heard of that term before but that sounds like something that's awesome <laughs> And that everybody should have part of that in their business, something that they give to people because they care about the business they're in or the community that surrounds them or they believe in the products that they're creating. And I really love that that's creating these happy communities. And like you said, happy people is kind of our bottom line. Yeah. She mentioned this a couple of times that she said if she catches herself complaining about something more than once, then she has two options, either let it go or do something about it. And then the other thing she said, especially when we asked her what her physiological response to an emergency was, she she said, well, you know, I I try to flip it. I try to figure out what's how could we turn this into something positive. It's not something that's just happening to her. It's 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 something that she can actually make something else happen out of that. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of giving her, she's taking power away from the bad stuff that might have happened. And she's putting that power back into herself and saying, okay, what can I do to make this work? Yes. She's like a flipper in a pinball machine. The ball is rolling downhill and she's like, whack, and whacks <laughs> it back up. And then it hits a something and goes ding, 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 ding. And tickets come out of the machine or something. I don't know. She, but <laughs> I think she would love that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, she like just takes the, the naturally occurring momentum and like puts her spin on it and makes something else out of it. <laughs>
I'm always continually learning from Tina. And every time I talk to her, I feel like I get a jolt of, of energy and excitement and enthusiasm about what I'm doing. And I think from this particular talk, I've kind of came out with the realization that I don't flip it a lot <laughs> and I'm I'm not a person who sleeps on it and I would I could be better at that so I'm really grateful to have been able to talk to Tina again because she is a wonderful business leader and I'm really excited to see what she's got coming up I mean, I felt energized by that whole talk, but I feel like I get a double dose of it because I feel your energy that you picked up from it too. So it's all compounding on itself. And I just love that. That's really nice. Yay. Good juju all around. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening, guys. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Tina's work. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love hearing from you. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modal of Your Studio with music by L1011. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure.